It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Monday, October 26, 2020. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. A staff member at Keith Gushaheen Elementary School has tested positive for the coronavirus. The city reported the new case Thursday. The woman is in her 50s and was not experiencing symptoms when she was tested on Tuesday. The case is tied to community spread, according to city data. In an interview with KCAW, Sitka School District Business Manager Casey Olin confirmed that the new patient is a staff member at the elementary school. She was tested as part of the school district's bi-weekly protocol. It's the third case the district has tracked since they resumed in-person classes this fall. The first two cases were at Blatchley Middle School. Olin says public health nurse Denise Ewing has completed contact tracing. One staff member is isolating and two more staff members are now quarantining. She says that when a staff member tests positive, they are immediately sent home. The pod or cohort of students the staff member interacted with is then quarantined to their classroom for the day until a school receives directions from public health about which students should test and quarantine. Olin says those who were in close contact with the patient have been directed to test at the search testing tent after seven days to ensure a more accurate test. She says each scenario is different. In this case, she says parents were given an option of keeping their students at home or sending them to school in the interim. Students in the potentially exposed pod are bused separately and quarantined while they're at school, providing they don't have symptoms. The Coast Guard assisted a disabled boat taking on water near Icy Bay last week. Watchstanders in Juneau received a request for assistance at around 7 p.m. on Wednesday from the 55-foot fishing vessel Elise Marie. They sent a plane, helicopter, and Coast Guard cutter to help. At around 9 p.m., an Air Station Sitka helicopter crew delivered a dewatering pump to the vessel, which was six miles south of Icy Bay. The crew of the Elise Marie used the pump to control flooding while they waited for further assistance from the Coast Guard. Coast Guard cutter John McCormick arrived at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday and towed the boat toward Yakutat. The Yakutat Police Department took over towing once the vessel was close to shore. The Elise Marie arrived safely in Yakutat at 11.30 p.m. on Thursday. An estimate of Prince of Wales Island's wolf population is complete and in the hands of state and federal wildlife managers. But officials refused last week to share their numbers with the regional council tasked with advising subsistence hunting and trapping on federal land. As Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, this comes as a petition is pending to list southeast wolves as a threatened species. There will be an open season for wolves on Prince of Wales Island, state officials told the Southeast Alaska Subsistence Regional Advisory Council. That's the body tasked with making key decisions on hunting and trapping on federal land and has a record in supporting the state's wolf management. But hard limits on harvesting wolves were eliminated last year, and that allowed hunters and trappers to redouble their efforts and take a record 165 wolves on and around the island. That's led conservationists to cry foul and ask that this season's winter wolf season be canceled. Hunters say the wolf population is healthy and blame the predator for keeping down the deer herd. Another view is that deer habitat has been lost to commercial clearcuts, especially on Prince of Wales. But before any decision on the wolf hunt is announced, the state and feds need to release their 2019 population estimate to justify their strategy. That was supposed to happen last month, but state officials have blamed COVID-19 for delays in completing lab and field work. Fast forward to Tuesday's Subsistence Regional Advisory Council meeting, where members expected to digest the latest 2019 wolf data. But Regional Wildlife Supervisor Tom Schumacher of the Alaska Department of Fish and Game told the council the data wouldn't be released until the details of the upcoming wolf season was finalized by his agency and the U.S. Forest Service. What I can tell you is that the 2019 fall estimate was higher than 2018. There will be a trapping season, and that trapping season will be shorter than it was last year. That withholding of data 
didn't sit well with members of the council. Tom, I'm a, I'm a little unclear on the population estimate and that uh, if that's a piece of data and it's final, uh, we want to hear it. Bob Schroeder is a member of the council from Juno. I can understand how uh, uh, releasing a management plan depends on negotiations and agreement with Forest Service, but a piece of data, if it's data, uh, we need to see it. The state has provided that information in the past, but that hasn't happened this year and won't happen until the length of the wolf season is announced, Schumacher said. Given the controversy surrounding this population, the population estimates, the management strategy, and the context in which those fall is all part of the same thing. And at this point, the department is not comfortable releasing that number. So I'm, I'm not going to do that today. A public records request for last year's wolf estimate filed by Coast Alaska early Thursday is pending. All of this is in the context of a recent petition by conservationists to protect Southeast Alaska's Alexander Archipelago wolves under the Endangered Species Act. It's the third such petition since the 90s. But Schumacher told the council on Tuesday the scuttlebutt is that the Fish and Wildlife Service is considering it. Our people at headquarters who deal with Endangered Species Act uh, matters on a regular basis tell me that the bar for accepting a petition is relatively low, and they think that uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service will accept that petition. He says the federal government could list the gray wolf subspecies as threatened. If they make that determination, uh, that has some pretty serious implications. In other words, no state or federal hunting or trapping season for southeast wolves. And subsistence would be regulated by a different division of the Fish and Wildlife Service that manages hunting and trapping more conservatively. Reached during a break on Thursday, the Regional Advisory Council's chair, Don Hernandez, says the state agency still hasn't shared its wolf population estimate with the council. We want to see a, you know, a well-managed wolf population that you know, allows for hunting and trapping if the uh, population numbers justify it. The Prince of Wales Island resident says the subsistence council had supported the state's wolf strategy. But they're supposed to take input from regional councils, which are in close contact with residents affected by these decisions. Withholding information doesn't make that possible. And, you know, all these decisions are going to be made in the next few weeks. And we're meeting now. And we don't have the information. Um, and they do. The advisory council only meets twice a year, with its next meeting tentatively scheduled for March. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. Scientists believe a massive glacial dam release recently occurred in southeast Alaska, but they probably wouldn't have known about it if they hadn't been tipped off by an observant commercial fisherman. KTOO's Matt Miller has more on the latest mystery in Latuya Bay. Jim Moore says Latuya Bay on the outer coast of southeast Alaska has always been a special place for his family. During the first day of the August Chinook season, the Sitka commercial fisherman was out in his boat with his two grandsons preparing to ride the flood tide into the bay to anchor up for the night. Instead, the current was flowing out the other way. This event, you know, was pretty spooky. The water was muddy, full of trees and other debris, and something that Moore hasn't seen since the 1970s, icebergs, as far as he could see into the bay, mostly refrigerator-sized and smaller. We picked up a couple and put these, this ice, this thousands of years old ice into our cooler to keep our food on the trip. Moore says it was too dangerous to fight the current to get into the bay. The prudent thing to do was <laughs> to leave the area. So what happened? 
Matuya Bay is a place where Mother Nature has always had the upper hand. In 1786, for example, French explorer La Perouse lost two boats and 21 men trying to chart the entrance to the bay. Longtime Southeast Alaska residents may remember the 1958 earthquake that killed five people. It also triggered a rockfall in the bay that generated one of the world's tallest tsunamis of at least 1,700 feet. But what happened to cause this latest mystery? Michael Loso, a geologist with the National Park Service, says satellite images taken just before and after the August event were key to solving it. First, he looked at the braided river delta between Latuya Glacier and Latuya Bay. The active channels that normally carry meltwater from the glacier down to the ocean had been completely revamped. You know, pre-existing channels were gone and new channels had formed in other places. Loso says they suspected more saw the aftermath of a glacial dam release. It's got a cool Icelandic name, Jokalap. And here's how it happened. Just above Latuya Glacier is Desolation Valley. In it, a four-square-mile lake is collecting meltwater from other nearby glaciers. Latuya Glacier normally acts as a dam holding the lake's water in place. Loso says a colleague noticed Desolation Lake's water levels had dropped by as much as 200 feet. You know, what that meant is now we had sort of the, the smoking gun for where did that water come from. It likely found a path under Latuya Glacier. And it's a lot of water. I mean a lot. Roughly the average hourly discharge of the Amazon River, the biggest river in the world. Loso says anyone camping on the Delta would have witnessed a big, violent torrent of water pouring down on them over a day or so. You would have had a little bit of time if you were paying attention to get out of the way, but if you didn't pick up on the signs of the rising river levels as the flood sort of began, that would be a deadly place to be. He also believes that water levels throughout Latuya Bay would have risen several feet above the high tide line because of the Yokolop. The biggest or one of the biggest to come out of this particular basin, and it's also one of the biggest that has happened in the state that we know of. Loso says archived satellite images and previously reported observations suggest this wasn't the first time it's happened. Because of climate change, Loso says it's possible it's occurring at least once, perhaps more, each year now. Meanwhile, Jim Moore continues helping scientists by compiling the underwater data he's collected over the last five decades. It would be interesting going back this coming year and seeing if there was any noticeable changes in that because it's a lot of water that ran out there carrying a, a big load of silt or mud or something. Loso hopes Moore's data will help them discover areas prone to underwater landslides, mini tsunamis, or any other secrets in Latuya Bay. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Matt Miller. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News. This is